Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. This show is all about sharing inspiration, uplifting stories, and practical career advice from innovative, original thinking, and pioneering women from around the world. You can find us here every second week, or why not sign up at don'tstopusnow.co so you never miss a show. Plus, you'd make our day if you could rate or review us. It really gives us a boost in more ways than one. It sure does. Now it's time for this week's show. Hello and welcome to episode number 169 of Don't Stop Us Now. Gosh, I feel old even just saying that really. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, we've got a really exciting one because we've got a wonderful guest today, Sally Ann Williams. Sally is the CEO of Cicada Innovations, Australia's 20 plus year old leading incubator for startups and scale ups working on really fascinating deep tech stuff with everything from quantum computing to life sciences, ag tech and space and hydrogen startups. Yeah, incredible. Absolutely amazing. Cicada provides everything from office space to custom labs to specialized equipment and training, all to help build a thriving deep tech ecosystem in Australia. Yeah, it's got a pretty amazing track record, as has Sally Ann. And, you know, nearly all of Cicada's startups tackle some of the world's biggest problems and UN sustainable development goals. Over the years, Cicada's helped its residents' companies raise nearly $2 billion in funding. And they've also had $1.4 billion in successful exits. Yeah, amazing. And I worked with Sally at Google, where she spent 13 years in quite diverse roles in the engineering team. She was responsible for, amongst many other things, bringing Street View to Australia and really influencing school curriculum to ensure better teaching of technology and STEM subjects, which she's particularly passionate about, which you'll hear. She's also been a huge proponent for the startup ecosystem and women in particular. Yeah, yeah, she really has. So in this episode, you'll hear how Sally coped working with Google's tech engineers without having any technology background, how she goes about building or harnessing diverse systems to deliver positive long-term change, the biggest challenge Sally faces running a deep tech incubator, why she thinks seaweed is actually more exciting than generative AI, and Sally's strategies for coping with chronic imposter syndrome. Yeah, Sally really sits in the box seat of what's happening at the forefront of tech across the board. So we're confident that you'll find this conversation with her super interesting. Yeah, it certainly is. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the deep tech and community-minded Sally Ann Williams. 
Sally Ann Williams, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. I'm very excited to sit down and have a chat with you. We are too. I mean, I've known you for quite a long time, but as I was saying, this is such an opportunity to ask questions that I would actually never ask you. So I'm really looking forward to it. And talking of questions I would never ask you, I'm going to start with one, which is our normal question for the podcast, which is, if you went to a dinner party and you were with people that didn't know you, how would you describe to those people what you do today? I love this question because this is actually my life. Whenever I go to a dinner party, and I think any dinner party I've been to for the last 15 or 20 years, I've had to describe what I do and unpack it for people. So what I talk about to people is say, you know, as the CEO of Cicada Innovations, what we're really focused on is building science and engineering businesses that solve some of the most fundamental challenges that we're facing in the world. So we do things like support life sciences businesses that are, you know, looking at antimicrobial resistance and diagnosing diseases so that we can all avoid the superbug and another pandemic. Or we work with new materials companies that are actually trying to build products and solutions for clothing and textile manufacturing that has, you know, uses no water and no nasty chemicals. So it's good for the planet. It's evergreen. It's recyclable. And it solves some of the things that we face. And generally, people sort of get excited about that and go, oh, what does that mean? What do you mean you do when you build these companies? And then I kind of get to unpack a little bit about what it means to actually work with people with ideas, researchers, innovators, creatives from every walk of life and support them on that entrepreneurial journey with both a physical space, with labs, with connections to capital, with connections to mentors, with connections to customers and go with them on the really, 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 really long and challenging journey that is being a founder and founding a deep tech business. So it's not a pithy, short, three-word answer, but it is one one that is really complex. And I think it gets people excited because people want to have a passion and a purpose in life. And I'm really lucky that basically everybody that works around me has a passion and a purpose and I get to be their champion and their cheerleader. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I mean, I already know why you're there, but as you describe it, it just becomes clearer and clearer. How exciting. Now, we will delve into that world of Cicada Innovations in a moment. But before we do, I think it'd be interesting to sort of step back to your childhood. You grew up in Queensland, in Australia, on the Gold Coast. Neither of your parents went to uni. And you ended up going and studying international relations and Japanese. What was the story behind how you got to sort of being really interested in those things and ending up studying? Oh, okay. So this is a really long dinner party and I'll have to have another glass of wine, please. Yeah, well, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit more to unpack than that. So so I actually grew up in a place called Madruba. And while that's kind of a, a better known suburb of the Gold Coast now, back then it was a very small country town. And my parents owned a fruit and veggie shop. And not only did they not go to university, they actually never even finished high school. I'm the youngest of three by a pretty hefty margin between both my brother and my sister and myself. I was always that kid that would ask why and ask why so many times I would become obnoxious and annoying, but I like to understand how things work. I like to understand 
how things are engineered. I like to understand languages. I like to understand systems. And so I was really, really lucky that I was in this very small school at the time. It's a state school system and had a really good experience. And when I went to high school, the only language that we had was Japanese. So I'm going to be really honest. My sole motivation for studying Japanese was that if I did well, I could potentially go on the exchange trip in year 10 or 11. And I was motivated by going traveling and going and seeing the world. I was like, that sounds awesome. But when I went to go to university, I really had no idea. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't understand the opportunities in front of me. I certainly had no idea where I would end up. My careers guidance counselor said to me, you know, if you do Japanese, you'll always have a job. And I was like, "Mm, that seems sensible. So why not? That's pretty compelling, I have to say. And traveling to Japan, I mean, it sounds like a very intelligent thing to do. Fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I, I don't regret it at all. I took a much more sort of circular pathway to end up where I am. But one of the things I really value most about it was the encouragement to go to university. So most of the kids in my high school didn't. So the encouragement to go and to move out of home at 17 and go to university in Brisbane and participate in things on campus just, again, extended my thinking, extended my analytical capability and just exposed me to so many different thinkers, not just locally, not just with my, you know, the students in my class or my professors, but just fields of thought and fields of study across every discipline, across the sciences, across the arts, across business, across language and literature. And it just opened my world to being curious and being really interested in always asking more questions to acquire more understanding of how the world works. Classic. I love the curiosity. And, you know, you talked about the career path and the like. And, you know, a little while later, you end up in Sydney and um, I think you do further studies and maybe even work at universities. But then you join Google. What attracted you to Google? Because it must have been in the pretty early days. Yeah. When when was it, Sally? I joined Google in 2006. 2007 I joined so it was early times wasn't it I remember your first day still so do you I don't remember my first day how how do you remember my first day I remember a lot of things about people's first couple of years at Google because generally there was at some point I was responsible for briefing them onboarding them telling them something about engineering basically whatever job somebody didn't want to do that involved engineering it got lumped with me to go to go talk to people about things so so true yeah so tell us how did you land at google back in 2006 this is great this is my husband it's all his fault i had been working at the university of sydney for a couple of years and i had really helped set up a new faculty there and done everything that was needed. I love starting things. I love going into things that are hard and challenging and there's no clear pathway and there's not a a roadmap to follow and you just have to figure it out. I'm a real builder and I loved that. But it was time for me to move on and my manager there had actually encouraged me to apply for other roles across the organisation to help me. You know, she was really pushing me in career development and thinking about the future. And I had no idea. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. But the thing that she really pushed me for was to think about roles inside and outside of the organization. And my husband, I went home that night and I was talking to him about all the things I was going to apply for. And he's like, why don't you work for Google? And I went, what? And he's like, well, you're the Google girl. Like every time we go to the pub, and you've got to remember this is before smartphones, right? So every time we go to the pub or out for a meal, and this comes back to curiosity, 
if we're in a conversation with somebody and they're curious about how something works or how what's the answer to a question, you know, how far is it to the moon, whatever it is, if we're in a position and there's no answer, you literally wait till we get home, you Google it, and then you email everybody the answer. Why don't you just go work for them? And I was like, well, they're in America. And he's like, no, there's a job in Sydney going. And he emailed it to me and was like, you need to apply because this is literally what you spend your day doing as a social good for all our friends. So you are practically the human version of search. So go work for them. And I did. (laughs) Classic. And, you know, I'm curious because you you talked about you, you joined the sort of the engineering kind of area, but you didn't have a tech background. Yeah. So I think Probably the two things is I actually did not have formal training in technology and I would never pretend to be a software engineer, but I am actually quite technical. My first computer, my friends took me to a component store and made me build it because she did do computer science. I said, I want a good deal on a computer. And she's like, well, the best way to do it is to build it. So she only told me that after she'd taken me to the component store. So I learned a lot about not being afraid of technology and to dive into it. And again, I think that curiosity that has been with me my whole life is I'm not afraid to ask why or how, and I love learning. So I would read all the technical design docs of every product idea that was getting put forward in engineering. I would ask questions about things. I sat in hundreds of meetings with things and got to the point where there was things that I wanted to build. And so I would design and work through and get people to volunteer and work on my teams to build those things for our internal solutions. So I think you have to find out what what are your strengths and what do you bring to the team? And for me, there's a lot that I bring to the team that wasn't what my software engineers could contribute. So we were very complementary in how we could work together to get to the great out to a great outcome that we mutually wanted. I totally uh, get what you're saying there, and that was it was very obvious. I mean, you had such a great partnership with the head of engineering as well in terms of you really were the right-hand person to him. You know, you worked on some pretty fascinating projects at Google. What stands out to you the most in terms of, you know, what you're most proud of or had the most impact for you personally? I got to do really cool things inside of Google. There's still a scooter floating around at the Australian Museum with my name on it, an underwater skeeter that you know, we used to actually prototype doing um, the underwater reef view, which was a 20% project that I helped start bringing um, street view to Australia and being, you know, the first country outside of the US to start driving the cars around and doing it. That was all fun and great. But the things that get me really excited is where you build a product that has uh, decadal impact and is self-sustaining. And so when I started doing work on computing education and really looking at how do we become more inclusive, you know, it's not through doing things in an after-school coding club, although those things are great. It's actually about driving curriculum reform and supporting teachers in the classroom and investing in them and their skills and capabilities. And that's hard. That's something that you have to influence that's outside of your direct control. And it was something that I was heavily involved with in both Australia and New Zealand and a few other countries as well. And we we successfully did that. But in partnership with Adelaide University and particularly um, Professor Katrina Faulkner down there and the Computer Science and Education Research Group, we built an online platform for professional development for teachers for the digital technologies curriculum. And this platform still exists. It's had in its first four years, it had over 45,000 teachers from kindergarten to year 12 in Australia 
go through the program, it engaged them not only how to teach computing and digital technologies in the classroom, but actually linked them up with their peers to create a community of practice and a support network to help them. And so was that a side project you had while you were at Google? No, it was actually a project that I did within Google and I funded it through my budget in computing and education research. So I created a job for myself inside of Google. Over over and above my day job, I, I moved myself into the research team and we had a global team that looked at long-term computing and education research. And I carved out a huge amount of work and a geography that I said to them, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to change the curriculum and I'm going to invest in teachers and this is what it's going to look like and these are the outcomes that we're going to see within five to ten years. Yeah, amazing. I mean, it is phenomenal that, you know, you can do that within Google, isn't it? That was the wonderful thing about working at Google was you could, well, at least then, you could try and design your own role if it made an impact that Google really cared about, which that clearly did. You know, it's interesting because it makes complete sense what you're doing now from what you've done then. And this ability to build and to build sustainable and impactful movements, I guess, is is sort of what you're doing. What have you learned as sort of the secret source to building those kinds of movements you know what do you have to have in order for them to be successful oh I love this question and I actually have an answer for it which is surprising to me but I think there's a couple of things I think the first thing is you have to have a really clear articulated vision about what it is that you're trying to achieve right? Um, And if I think about Cicada's vision, we fundamentally believe, and I fundamentally believe that Australia's economic prosperity, that it's inclusive economic prosperity, lies in transforming large part of our economy from being just a services-based sector to being a deep tech sector. You know, science and engineering founded and built and growing businesses, solving some of the world's most pressing problems using the natural assets that we have here and the talent and the capabilities. And so you've got to have a vision that you can articulate that people can buy into, and it's got to be a shared vision, right? I think this is the second point. If you really want to drive change, I would argue you're not trying to build a movement, you're trying to build a system. Mm. And that system has to have shareholders. Now, they're not direct shareholders that are maybe putting money in and getting an equity stake in you, but they are shareholders, people that share that vision and they share the values and, and the alignment of what you want to do to get there. So you've got to have a collective vision that's really clear articulated and then bring people around that with you. Innovation is a team sport. Curing cancer is a team sport. You know, any significant change that we want to drive as a system is a team-based activity. So it's going to be collective impact, which means it needs to be a collective win. And I need to have people around me, both formally and informally, who I serve and who serve me. So there's this mutuality that needs to occur. No one part of a system is greater than the other. If you get one part too strong, you know, somebody else has to overcompensate or one part becomes weaker. So how do we actually achieve together and have that collective impact and that collective transformation and change? And I think for me, that's one that we fall short of a lot in Australia, particularly around things. If I think about campaigns for computing education, 
Nearly every corporate I've seen wants to go it alone to put their brand or their stamp on something. And yet if we can come together, it actually creates a far bigger impact. And that's something that I really, you know, really, really proud of that I changed inside of Google of how we were doing things that was in my direct control as I deliberately built things outside of Google and took our logo off to get other people's logo on there because the mission was more important than an individual win. You've segued us beautifully, um, Sally, to your role today and, you know, hearing about what your passions were at Google can certainly understand why you took the leap after 13 years and joined Cicada Innovations as CEO. For listeners, can you just tell us briefly about who Cicada is and its key purpose? Yes. So Cicada Innovations is 23 years old this year, and we exist to solve the world's most pressing problems through building science and engineering businesses and delivering products and services to market. And so in that time, we have incubated on site at our physical premises in Sydney over 350 businesses and help them grow and thrive and survive. And they cover everything from in the life sciences, medical devices, diagnostics, therapeutics, software as a medical device. We've got agriculture and ag tech companies in here. We've got quantum companies, new material companies, new battery companies, hydrogen companies, space companies, robotics companies. The common denominator is all of these businesses is that what they're trying to solve generally ladders up to one of the UN SDGs. So it by its very nature is a wicked hard problem and it has a large addressable market. And so they're very passion-driven and purpose-driven founders who really want to grow these businesses and grow the capability and grow it from here in Australia to provide opportunities for others to come and join their business in future generations as well. But the kind of impact we see from that is, you know, we've helped resident companies and alumni companies raise over $1.7 billion. We've seen 1.4 billion of exits. Uh, 85% of all the companies that have been incubated on site here have gone on to thrive and survive. So it's really about building an economic engine for Australia and it's about building it to last the efforts of the people around me that I'm just privileged enough to serve in the capacity as CEO here. And it sounds really huge, like the remit, you know, whether it's lobbying for appropriate policies or ensuring there's funding to keep Cicada going or funding for ventures or what do you find the most challenging part of the role? Oh, you know, the biggest challenge I think that that I face in this role, and I think it's one that we probably all face, is prioritisation. You know, all of those individual levers are important. All of those things need to be done. All of those things need to be solved for. But how do you get the timing right? And how do you push on a lever at the right time to get the impact you want? And juggling that is is really, really, you know, it's a daily challenge because you have to be both proactive but also responsive. Yeah, so because there's so many exciting you know, fields being explored within, you know, and under Cicada Innovation's roof. You know, speaking of that, you know, you're really arguably in the box seat there because right now around the world, we're witnessing an explosion of interest and hype in AI, particularly generative AI. From your viewpoint, what's your reaction to where things are at currently with AI? It's so funny that I'm probably the least excited person about AI in some ways. 
And I guess it's because the generative AI and sort of things, you know, it's a useful tool, but if you've been working in the sector and actually been inside the field for a while, we've actually had access to to things for quite some time. And so it's not as new and exciting and shiny, I guess, for me. Where I think AI really has great potential and can do something positive for people and planet is when you start looking at things around being able to, you know, reduce the pathway to bringing new drugs to market. So, for example, looking at, you know, clinical trial data and biological sort of processes and systems and using AI and large data sets to accelerate that drug discovery piece and accelerate the pathway to a clinical trial stage so that it can be used faster or where you look at AI in being able to help with the really big challenge of this emerging area of unique diseases that we're seeing. So rare diseases or disease characteristics that don't fit a a typical treatment pathway. So what do we do? And AI has incredible power there through the data sets that we have in the healthcare sector and, and in treatments to look at orphan drugs or, you know, drugs that are, are used for one purpose that could, be, that could be transferred in this case. So you do sort of start to get into that personalised medicine and you can do it in a way that is, is cost effective and can produce really good outcomes. So I think those are the things that kind of get me really excited about AI, but we just have to be really mindful. And I think pause and step back and go, what are we really trying to solve with this? And what yeah. is the purpose behind it? Because just doing it for tech, for tech's sake, we already know that leads to perverse outcomes and perverse use cases and also doesn't lead us into a place of health and safety and well-being when, you know, we haven't got a way of systemically reviewing the data sets and understanding, you know, where are the inherent biases within them and things like that. So we've, we've got to step back from it instead of jumping to it as a solution really kind of interrogate the problem space that we're trying to solve and then go, is this an appropriate avenue to explore? And if so, how do we do it equitably, sustainably and usefully and responsibly? Yeah, couldn't agree more, especially in terms of the whole explainability of the black box, but also the hype around generative AI in terms of, well, creating a really smart chatbot. If that's where people think the money is, then we're not actually saying hey, direct your energies and resources to solve genuine world problems, not just have a really, you know, slick writer and content creator or whatever it might be. But yeah. No, I know it's it's the hot topic at the moment and I'm sure there'll be another hot topic that comes in six months time or something. Can I give you a hot topic? Yes, please give us a hot topic. Please can we talk about seaweed and please can we talk about fungi and please can we talk about biomimicry and co-designing with nature. It is so much more exciting and has so much more opportunity, you know, for people, planet and prosperity. And it's way more exciting. Well, tell us. I'm mad for seaweed. I love it, right? Mm. Uh, So seaweed and algae. So seaweed has this ability. One, it's a natural carbon sink, right? So it captures carbon and stores it. It is very easy to grow and it's very accessible and actually can provide an incredible income stream for women and emerging communities around the world because places where seaweed is often grown and the people that harvest and grow seaweed 
tend to be in developing communities and in developing countries. So it's a, it's a, it's an economic unlock for people. The thing about seaweed that's really cool, and I'm just going to give you three ways that seaweed and algae could be used. So one is for its nutritional pro- properties. So depending on the type of seaweed or algae, you can actually find things which have really high protein content that have really good properties that can deal with inflammation and things like that. So as a nutritional supplement, as something that could be augmented into our food chain to help us feed the world more sustainably and with better nutrient outcomes because a lot of our food these days doesn't have the high nutritional content it once did. You know, it's a great thing to consider. The second one is cow farts, right? Cow farts. So this may sound hilarious to everybody out there, but there's a species of seaweed called Asparagopagus and there's at least two companies in Australia and a couple more overseas that are harvesting this and producing a feed stock for cattle that reduces their farts, which reduces methane gas, which reduces, you know, carbon emissions. So not only does it sink carbon, but it makes the emissions less. And apparently it also makes the beef tastier. So for the meat eaters out there, you know, this is a good outcome all round. And it's a renewable resource, right? Seaweed is actually very, very quick to grow and harvest. Now, the third one, which is really exciting, and there's quite a few companies doing this as well at the moment in Australia, is looking at how do you actually take seaweed and use it to replace plastic? So if you process certain types of seaweed in certain ways, you can actually extract a polymer that can be used to make both rigid plastics and it can actually be used to make woven into potentially into materials to replace elastane in all of the active wear that we love to wear so much these days. And now why does that matter and why should you care about it? Well, we all know about the ocean plastics problem, but did you know that you have an, a stomach plastics problem? So by all the seafood that you eat right now, every fish that is caught and every fish that is gonna, you're going to be ingested is going to have some degree of microplastics in it, I'm sorry to tell you, and they're going to end up in your gut, right? So we need to deal with this plastics problem. This is worth getting excited about. This is worth getting out of bed in the morning. And then when you add on my manufacturing company upstairs, that's, you know, making textiles with no water and no harsh chemicals. So they're avoiding polluting the populations around the world where textiles are manufactured. That's getting even more exciting. That laddering effect, new materials, it's where it's at. It's that's what everyone should talk about. Australia's got so much potential in this. Amazing. Well, I I mean, on the seaweed front, I'm, I'm sold. Where do I sign up? Well, I've, I've got a, I'll send you a couple of investment opportunities. Excellent. <laughs> Not to mention, you know, I know others have been working on seaweed as a biofuel. Yeah, amazing. You've got so much knowledge about so many things. And I know you said right at the beginning that you really are a big learner and that, and you're so curious and you're, you know, so this is what you do. But do you have any tips for people who are trying to keep up with, you know, what's going on in the world? Because there is so much that's new. I think it's about putting yourself into a place where going, where can I go that's not my usual environment? So what can I participate in socially on occasion or from an event perspective that isn't in my domain of expertise and isn't in my normal network of people. So for me, I'm in the midst of deep tech. All I do is deep tech. If you see anything that comes out from Cicada Innovations, all of our events, I'm surrounded by it all day. So I I get an overwhelming amount of that. What I don't get an overwhelming amount is of what's going on in the rest of the economy. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough to serve on the board of a member-owned bank and that 
stretches my thinking and stretches my worldview and experience into the financial services sector, which is not one that I spend all of my days in. So finding ways to deliberately put yourself out of your comfort zone and meet people that are in different sectors as much as possible just forces your brain to have an agility and a flexibility in thinking and approach to learning that I think is really, really, really helpful. Yeah, really fascinating. And just as that's great advice from you on how to learn, if you think about all the advice you've been given, what's the best piece of advice that springs to mind? I think one of them that speaks to me as a woman who most people would see as quite confident and yet I walk around with massive amounts of imposter syndrome on a daily basis like horrific, horrific. Really? Absolutely. That's a whole other podcast. Oh my God. We're going to have to come back to that. Yeah. The level of doubt that I have of my skills and my capabilities is so high. And so the best piece of advice I ever got on this was when I was 14. And I will credit this to this man because he's a phenomenal friend of mine, um, Gary Wallace. And he invited me to do something that I felt too young to do, unqualified to do, and that I was just not the right person. And he said to me, do you trust me? And I was like, absolutely. You're so wise. It's like a father figure to me, right? He goes, do you think I've done a good job with this organization? I said, yes. And he goes, have I picked the right speakers for all of these in the past? I'm like, yes, they've been amazing. He goes, so your only job is to decide whether you're available and you want to do it. Because if you trust me, It's on me to decide whether you're ready or not for this because I'm the one that's opening the door to this opportunity. Your job is to just do your best and show up and you'll either be brilliant and exactly the right person for the job at this time, which is what I think, or it'll fall flat and then it's on me, but you'll have learned something in the process. And I just sat there and went, you've given me no out (laughs) Um, because I've just said I trust you. But, But what that did for me was go, if the person giving me advice and pushing me to leap and to give a go at something is somebody who I admire and trust and have, you know, confidence in, then I, if I don't have the faith in myself, I should believe in the faith that they have in me and rest on that and give it a go. And that will help me grow. That's, I love that. And I'm really curious how you now parlay that into a CEO role where one can argue it's a bit more lonely. And, you know, I'm sure if you you say day to day, you you wrestle with imposter syndrome and doubts about your kind of capabilities or whatever. So how do you in the moment, if faced with some big challenge or whatever, how do you get through those doubts if they flare up? Oh, I now have this new strategy of what's the worst case scenario. I'll be really transparent. My worst case scenario is I fail at everything I try and do. I lose my job and I go and end up working in the pub up the road and I'm okay with that. And so (laughs) that when I actually lean into that and go, well, what would that matter? You know, would you feel ashamed of that? And I was like, no, I worked in four hospitality jobs and retail jobs to put myself through university. There's no shame. That's actually a great job. And I also really appreciate the people in my local pub. Like I love them. I think they're awesome. I pay them more, tip them because they they provide a service. And so my worst case scenario is that I end up doing that. I've cleaned houses. I've done ironing. I'm like, my worst case scenario is a good scenario. It's a job. And it puts a roof over my head and food on the table. So if if I'm only afraid of whether I fail or not, that's about being 
ego and it's not serving and so it's not serving me and it's not serving my community and it's not serving my people so just give it a shot and if the worst case scenario happens am I comfortable with that and I'm like I actually probably wouldn't mind it quite frankly because I (laughs) wouldn't have to be staying up at night working on emails or presentations (laughs) be pretty damn good there's a lot to be said for simpler roles yeah (laughs) yeah and I definitely love the worst case scenario I think it's something that Claire and I teach in full potential labs work and everything all the time too sort of related to that do you have any mottos that you kind of live by oh I have one and it's tattooed on my wrist well, there you go. That's a topical question and I may just have read about that. <laughs> oh, there you go. So yeah, my wrist tattoo, embrace life. Life gives you opportunities that you would have never planned for, never expected or never thought about. And your only response is to think about whether you want to do them or not. And if the answer is yes, then give it your all. And and I honestly firmly believe that I never sought to be a CEO I never really thought you know chased working at Google I've never really chased anything I am doing now have done or will do I've been really of that motto of work hard be diligent serve as best you can serve wherever you're planted and and wherever you are called into to serve and work and you know embrace the moment in front of you no matter what it is And if you do that, things will come up that you haven't planned for. And, you know, they will be the things that will surprise and delight you. They'll probably terrify you, but, you know, they'll also surprise and delight you. I think that leads beautifully um, into a question that we sort of like to end with with all of our guests. Sally, what does success look like for you? Community. That's such an odd, odd answer to give. But for me, success is living in community, serving that community, equally being served by them. And that's both, you know, through work, but also personally in life and helping everybody around you, supporting and nurturing them to be the best that they can be. And and mutually they do that for you. And that if you can be, if you can position yourself wherever and everybody can, wherever you are working, wherever you live. You can actively actually choose this. If you do this, you're just going to have such a richer life because people will challenge you to be better. You will challenge them to be better. You will celebrate the little wins. You will celebrate the the big wins. You will cry together. You'll laugh together. But if you can do community, that's success. That's success. It's the best. It's the absolute best. If I could do nothing else, that is the, the one thing I want to spend my time doing. As they say, it takes a village. Mm. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, that's really is what you have been doing. You can see that all the way through your yeah, career. Yeah. It might be in different guises, but it's well, always been there. Sally Ann, it's been such a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. If listeners are curious to learn more about you or Cicada Innovations and the amazing different work going on there, where should they go? Oh, head on over to our website, so cicadainnovations.com and find out a little bit more there. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find if you put my name in and Cicada Innovations will come up. But, you know, I just encourage you, be curious and, and check out our website and our founders. And if you're curious about any of our resident companies, reach out to them and ask how you can help them. It's a fabulous community to be a part of. Awesome. Well, 
it's been fantastic. And again, there's that community word and let's hope uh, we stay in greater community and you're now part of the Don't Stop Us Now community too. So thanks so much, Sally. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to talk to you both. I think it takes a really special kind of person to be able to handle and navigate complicated systems such as Sally has over her career, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it's really quite something. And even now at Cicada, the breadth of diverse stakeholders and subjects that must cross her desk. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, no, it really is. It must be really hard to say no to things, I would imagine. But, you know, in this conversation, I was really particularly fascinated by the fact that Sally admitted that she has chronic imposter syndrome. What's really interesting is that I worked with her all those years and I didn't realise. So she just masked that and you just couldn't tell by the way she conducted herself? I think that's right. I mean, clearly she's got great tools and techniques Mm. for getting through it. But yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah. Well, I think it's fantastic that she shared that because, you know, the more we can talk about these things, the more we normalize the fact that, let's face it, so many people have imposter syndrome or feelings of they're not ready yet or all kinds of things. So it's really great to talk about it and show that it's okay. It's normal. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring a woman who has more conviction than perhaps anyone we've ever met before. That's serial entrepreneur Sue Fennessy, who's founded and successfully scaled and sold three businesses, but it's her conviction about her current venture which blows us away. Yeah, that is for sure. And she needs that conviction too, as Sue is literally taking on the big social media platforms. It's a totally fascinating and compelling discussion, so don't miss it. In the meantime, have a great week. Take care and have Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Fun. Ciao for now.